Hello and welcome to Panorama. My name is Sarah Robertson and I am here with my co-host Dan Torres. Hey Sarah, how are you? Hey, I am doing well. Um, I'm excited to have our guest on the show, Meg Sheehan. She is a volunteer lawyer working with the Community Land and Water Coalition as well as Save the Pine Barrens in a recent court case that has to do with solar siting in the city of Waltham. So Meg, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much, Sarah and Dan. Of course. Um, so I want to get started by having you explain to us what this recent ruling means. Um, the state Supreme Judicial Court ruled against the city of Waltham in an appeal where they were trying to block an access road from being built to an industrial solar array in a neighboring town. Um, could you explain to us what this means and maybe how you got involved with this case too? Sure. So. It's an actually a very narrow ruling in terms of what it means for a municipal body's ability to site and regulate the siting of solar. It involves a case in the city of Waltham, as we mentioned, that does not have a solar bylaw. And probably maybe 50% of the towns in Massachusetts do have solar bylaws and those all specify things like size of solar, certain zoning districts that they'll allow solar in. So in terms of this case, all that still remains um, effective and valid law. This particular case, as I mentioned, Waltham did not have a solar bylaw, so they were using their regular zoning law and applying it to this road, as you mentioned, through a residential neighborhood to build a solar project in an abutting town. And the lower court, the land court, whose decision was upheld by the Supreme Court, really engaged in what's called judicial activism and pulled out his GIS map and looked around and said, well, if this is, if solar is limited to commercial industrial and distri districts in Waltham, that's only 2% of the town. So the town only allows solar in 2% of its overall area. Um, and that's unreasonable because the zoning statute at issue said no town municipality may unreasonably regulate solar. Hmm. The thing that we didn't look at is the fact that solar is allowed everywhere in town or in the city on rooftops, small ground mounted ones on say the campus of Brandeis, et cetera. And he was just looking at large industrial scale ground mounted projects. Okay. So it's problematic in that way. Um, it's, you know, clearly not a good decision for Walpam and their ability to use their zoning laws to to regulate solar in this way. But in terms of overall impact on the ability of all the other 364 cities and towns in Massachusetts to regulate solar, not really a big impact. Okay. Well, the sentence is not so big and scary as maybe some people had thought. Right. Um, but I, I do want to ask you about the idea of it being um, or of the idea of towns not being allowed to unreasonably regulate solar energy. Mm -hmm. um, it 
sounds like only allowing it on 2% of the town would be considered that now, and you don't think that will be, apply more broadly to other cities and towns? Well, um, like I said, it really comes down to what the town's zoning bylaw results in as an impact. So Waltham did not have a solar bylaw. Other towns, Wareham and you know most other towns, Plymouth, for example, they have solar bylaws. They limit them, say, in size or to land that hasn't been um, clear cut within the last five years, et cetera. So like you can't cut down trees in order to site solar. That's what Plymouth says. Um, so, sorry. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Um, do let's move on to another question. Okay. Um, how did how did you get involved in this case? I got involved in this case because I've been working on this issue for seven years or so. And I first got involved in Plymouth, my hometown, where an area of critical environmental concern in the Herring River watershed was being clear cut by a solar developer with only a building permit. And there was no environmental impact report, no wetlands review, no state environmental impact review. Because the town had not enacted a solar bylaw to regulate the siting and magnitude and locations of solar. So it just went ahead with a building permit and people got very concerned and then a few other projects popped up and we were able to stop those and get the town to enact a bylaw that now does regulate the location and the size. So then that the state started to do some rulemaking about the siting of solar and what would be eligible for state subsidies, but that didn't go far enough. And when they, I believe it was 2018, issued another round of subsidies for large ground mounted solar, we experienced a rush of basically shell companies coming into Massachusetts to take advantage of our open space and site these large projects. So then the whole controversy, you know, got renewed with cities and towns trying to control that. Um, Meg, I, I have a question. And, and I asked this last time that Sarah and, and I had a conversation about solar, and I'm, I'm curious to know what, what you think. Um, you know, there's a lot of environmentalists right now who are active who want to shift us to renewable energies that's their focus they're telling us you know climate change is real and it's happening and i want you to tell us and the listeners um why does this um put, put why does the expansion of solar potentially damage uh, our towns and our ability to regulate solar? Like, should this be seen as a good thing? What's detrimental about the the ruling made by, not by the Supreme Judicial Court and uh, solar in general? Well, as I mentioned, the, the ruling by the court really doesn't change much in the other t cities and towns. So we still have our power to use our local land use controls to regulate solar. Part of the problem is some of the 
you know, poorer towns or less upscale towns with a lot of open space and weak boards like Carver, Wareham, environmental justice communities with a lot of open space, they're being targeted, the land is cheap, they're being targeted with large industrial scale projects. We, our alliance, everyone in our alliance, I think it's safe to say, believes that we need to shift to renewable energy, that we need to reduce our consumption and help address the climate crisis. However, even the United Nations warns against renewable energy at all costs. And recently um, it stated in one of its reports that the siting of renewable energy and re resource extraction for renewable energy um, manufacturing, such as lithium mining, is having an impact on biodiversity and we can't address climate resiliency and the climate crisis without also looking at the forests that we need, particularly like in Southeastern Mass, where we're very vulnerable to flooding and our forests and our wetlands help to mitigate against sea level rise. So we need our natural systems and they perform an ecosystem function with regard to the climate crisis. So it's just as in common sense to fill wetlands, put solar in riverfronts, cut down forests, and say you're going green without looking at the overall balance. And, you know, there are studies that show that 80% of U.S. energy needs could be met by solar on rooftops with battery storage. Um, that, that actually I wanted to ask a follow-up question about that. Why is it so much uh, more incentivized to do clear-cut foresting uh, solar than than rooftop for uh, solar. Can you talk a little bit about the economics behind that? Sure. So in our state, um, it the orientation of the Department of Energy Resources is really towards um, business and corporations and helping them to you know make a profit and set up their businesses easily, etc. So those solar subsidies are out there and it's very easy for corporations to get them and it's just extremely profitable and landowner landowners lease their land um, to solar it's um you know short-term 20-year lease the town gets a payment in some form of taxes or, or something so it's just very profitable for large corporations and these are some of the same fossil fuel companies who are building these solar projects and trying to greenwash themselves as green by building solar. You know, whether really? it's- Really? Yeah, like the, Next Era. Well, it's Next Era. That, so there's companies that are also in the fossil fuel sphere who have, I think you called them shell companies originally. Right. So companies within companies. <laughs> Right. They set up LLCs, you know, they're out-of-state investors. A lot of them we're seeing are, you know, Colorado, California, just, they're just joint venture, child corporations. Borrego Solar is another big one, but they're one of the bigger ones that are really just doing solar. It's largely greenwashing. Um, so, Meg, when it comes to like a solar company coming to a small town, and if the small town doesn't want something, I, I think we're finding that 
um, these towns aren't well equipped enough legally to fight some of these companies. Is that something that you've seen in your experience? Yes, I'm working actually right now on a project where the Conservation Commission in Wareham denied a large solar project that would be in a riverfront area and on a cranberry bog and the developer appealed that so now the town has to go to court to defend itself and the town was defending you know wildlife its riverfront its water etc so yes i agree that a lot of the laws whether they're local zoning bylaws or our state wetlands protection act are not equipped to provide towns with the tools necessary because the rules aren't written for this type of huge industrial use that's getting preferential treatment under the zoning laws. A lot of towns enacted well-meaning solar um, bylaws and didn't, I don't think, like, you know, Carver or Wareham are both two good examples. They both have 19 large ground mounted solar projects covering hundreds of acres in total. I don't think they realized that they'd have this big onslaught of these big projects. So when they wrote their bylaw, they wrote it in a way that let solar go anywhere, including in residential districts. And they thought they could control it by the different permitting processes within the town. But that's turning out not to be true because it's hard for a board to deny a project. They'll get sued by the developer. And the existing bylaws, the way they wrote them, are not all that robust and not really, they're not prepared to address these big projects. So they need to go back and rewrite their bylaws, which a lot of them are doing. Yeah, and which a lot of towns in Western Mass here are doing Could, too, but they'll all, often do it in response to a to a proposed project. And, uh, so I believe it was a law from 1985 that says you can't unreasonably regulate solar. Do I have that correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about um, what the climate was like for renewable energy in 1985 when that law was passed, what the intentions were, and then how it's playing out now. Yeah, so that was the focus of our brief, um, our amicus brief to the Supreme Judicial Court, and we really hoped that the court would go back and look at what's called the legislative history of that clause that was in, at issue in the Waltham case. And we and some of our allies and volunteers did really go back and pull out the original laws, which always describe what is the purpose of this law and why are we doing this? And we actually went into the archives at um, the law library, et cetera, and found little brochures that were circulating at the time about what is a solar energy system, which is the language that was incorporated into the law. And it was talking about solar on rooftops and how to put solar, you know, on your property in your backyard or something. And likewise, all the bills that were filed and legislators' comments at the time talked about solar energy systems being for residential use or say on a, on a business, but not large industrial scale solar projects. So that's still an open question, that interpretation of the legislative history, the court didn't delve into that, but we think it's clear 
that this preferential treatment for solar under the zoning law was never intended um, to have these results. It's an unintended consequence. Why do you think that uh, industry has shifted from rooftop to ground-mounted industrial arrays? Oh, because it's cheaper and it's much easier. And, you know, companies like Blue Wave or anyone will tell you that, that it's uh, too complicated to do the engineering, to put it on, uh, you know, on top of a warehouse or an Amazon warehouse or to retrofit homes. It's much easier, cheaper and faster just to go clear cut and put up the solar project. I was just going to ask about the environmental impact. I wanted you to kind of dig into that a little bit. Talk a little bit about the contradiction there, right? Because it's it's clear it's it's clearing forest, putting up solar. What can you tell us is the damage done to the environment long term, and how how does it actually hurt our goals to being more sustainable, reducing uh, carbon emissions, and things like that? Well, I think everyone you know it's common sense that trees accumulate carbon. Our soils also accumulate carbon. Um, forests are the only known mitigation that we have for accumulating carbon right now, as our expert um, testimony that we submitted to the SJC talked about that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are so many studies going on and incentive programs for, you know, carbon offsets or carbon credits to save forests, plant a tree, plant <laughs> 3 million trees or plant a million trees. You know, there's that calculation and you know the state will come in and the developers like Borrego will say oh but we pulled out this little calculator and when we put the numbers in the um, avoided emissions from fossil fuels are replacing that with renewables um, when you do those numbers we are reducing carbon more than we're um, removing carbon accumulation. But, you know, that's all based on the false assumption that we are replacing megawatt for megawatt right now. We're, we're getting off fossil fuels and replacing it with a megawatt of solar, which we're not doing. And um, it ignores the greater impacts, as I was talking about, wetlands, waterways, climate resiliency, biodiversity, forests and soils, that we're only beginning to understand how forest trees talk to each other and mycelium all have these networks and we're really obliterating, permanently destroying our forests, particularly in Southeastern Mass, where we have sandy soil, pine barren forest soils that took 30,000 years to accumulate and we're obliterating them and nothing can grow there again in human time. I wanted to also mention that there's probably going to be some uh, issues with uh, containing waters and floods, right? It, it, I've been, this is, we're recording this in mid-June. I read a, a bunch of stories about rain and how that's going to impact. And if you do a lot of the changes that we're talking about, there's also going to be an impact for homeowners, businesses, especially if a lot of the trees and forests and, and nature is removed and thus you have lots of rain, the rain is going to go somewhere, right? Can you, can you talk a little bit about the, the economic costs of environmental damage? Sure, especially in um, 
communities, you know, town centers next to big rivers or in coastal areas, so much work is going on to, you know, spend millions and billions of dollars trying to make um, communities climate resilient and to, in, in order to be able to deal with, you know, what we're already seeing, more precipitation, heavier rainfalls, you know, more intense storms. Um, and again, these natural systems are our best defense against flooding and sea level rise. And it just makes no sense to, for example, in Wareham, fill all these wetlands and rip trees off the sides of hills and then pretend that you're going to be able to contain it in some on-site on stormwater uh, system that often we're finding they're under-designed and they don't take into the future increased levels of precipitation that we're seeing. And I think flooding was actually the premise of a fine that one of the solar companies in Williamsburg received. It, they were fined like a million dollars for their basically poorly laid out plans for what they were going to do with runoff. And it had some serious impacts on the local river there. And and I would also assume agriculture too, right? It's going to have some impact on on the food we consume, but also probably the water, right, that we drink and, and that animals need as well. Yes, that's a big issue. Um, forests and vegetation and soils, and especially the sand in southeastern Mass, um, they filter and purify our water. And when we strip off the topsoils, and in many cases with solar, replace it with just gravel underneath the solar panels or hydro seeding, we're removing that filtration capacity. And in terms of agriculture, you know, some of the state's most lucrative subsidies are for putting solar on farmland or cranberry bogs. We are finding that this dual use solar is being used in places where it shouldn't be, like on some of the world's prime forest uh, farmland in Northfield. Mm. There's a large solar project proposed there. The cranberry bogs in southeastern Mass are the epitome of solar gone wrong. We have one, two projects in Carver where wood poles treated with copper chromated arsenic, cancer-causing chemicals, mm. have been installed in cranberry bogs and in the aquifer to mount solar panels. And there have been studies and it's extremely controversial. Now they're supposed to be removed, but other projects are coming along and proposing to use the same toxic poles to put in our sole source aquifer and the groundwater. So there are just so many ways that the state subsidy program has just gone off the rails. And so the, the driving force behind a lot of these cases seems to be the subsidies that Massachusetts is um, offering some of these companies to come in and build solar arrays. These are the, the Solar Massachusetts Renewable Target Program, the SMART program, offers some um, fairly lucrative subsidies to these large companies to come in and build solar arrays. So um, could you talk about how that has been kind of fueling this conflict of what some people might call overdevelopment? Sure. Yes, it's definitely um, what's driving all the deforestation and loss of farmland in Massachusetts for large solar. The state issued another round of it in 2018 that caused this huge you know, rush of these companies from all over the world to come to our state. So 
It basically is a program where the state specifies different types of programs and different subsidy levels, whether you're agriculture and dual use on a bog, certain types of adders you can get, they call them adders. If you put a pollinator garden or claim you're putting a pollinator garden, you get you know one level of subsidy. So that's really what's driving it is the profits. And then once you get approved, once your project gets approved, you can sell renewable energy credits, which we have a program in Massachusetts, the Renewable Portfolio Standard requires electricity suppliers to sell a certain amount of renewable energy. So the solar companies have a ready-made market. They don't have to compete with anyone. They can just sell these credits and collect um, fat profits. Yeah. How does that work so that they're earning credits for generating solar electricity with their arrays and they're selling them to providers like National Grid Neversource? Yes. Yes. Okay. Who else is involved in some of these deals? Because the solar companies need to find the land to put their arrays on as well. Where do the landowners come in? Right. So, you know, we have many small landowners. Um, the companies have gotten really good at GIS and finding like 40, 50 acres because the SMART program maximum for one standalone project is 50 acres, so have to, they have to build them in chunks, but they can build them over time and next to each other, which is what we're seeing, um, segmenting them. And I know a little bit about Shootsbury. You know, I think the Southeastern Mass and Western Mass have one thing in common, I think, when it comes to solar siting, or oh, many things, but we have really large landowners. Some of our largest landowners in Western Mass, you have Kyle's Lumber. Um, they're you know, always looking for different subsidy programs to um, support their logging business. And then in Southeastern Mass, we have AD Makepeace Company and other, other big cranberry growers too with large parcels. But AD Makepeace is the second largest landowner. I believe Kyle's says they're the largest. And they own 12,000 acres. And both of these companies, of course, have all their land and preferential real estate tax classifications. They call it Chapter 61, so they pay very low real estate taxes. Um, and then they can reap these benefits by leasing their land for solar. Hmm. So that's what's driving a lot of the kind of focused efforts in Carver and Wareham, where Makepeace has a lot of land, and I think in Western Mass, too, in Shootsbury. Mm -hmm. Meg, I had a hypothetical here for you that I would want you to respond to. Okay, if, if you're the governor of Massachusetts and you get to make any law you want, let's just say in this hypothetical, how would you change the current subsidies or current laws to still encourage solar production but not the current model? What would you do differently or how would you change the subsidies to make it more equitable? Sure, very easy. I would just rewrite the smart solar program regulations and say that really there should be no clear cutting of forests for ground mounted solar. There should be no filling of rivers or wetlands and um, potential our gubernatorial candidate Mara Healy has come out to say that she is against clear cutting forests for solar and she can emit an order that put the subsidies uh, four projects like that, and we have a moratorium petition that you can find on our website, savethepinebarrens.org, that would tell her exactly what to do or 
you know, as a model for solar done right. There have been attempts to change the way that we do solar subsidies in Massachusetts. Are you familiar with um, some of those movements? I know that Joe Comerford, uh, our senator out here, um, she tried to introduce a bill that was like an act to reasonably regulate solar siting, and that has kind of been held up too. But are you familiar with some of the efforts to change that are already in progress? Yes. Um, and the House, the House version of that is House 4331, and it will expand the zoning powers of local municipalities, those same zoning powers that were at issue in the Waltham case. So it expands the purposes, the current zoning losses, you can regulate, reasonably regulate for the public health, safety and welfare. This adds on for the protection of forests and agriculture, um, agricultural uses. So those are really important. I believe that it's in committee and they have until the end of June to report that out favorably. So people could definitely call the legislators and ask them to move that bill forward. Meg, I, I was curious before we take a break, uh, if you can quickly talk about what's going on in Shutesbury in terms of solar. You said you knew a little bit about it. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about what's happening there now? Sure. I think there are proposals um, from Cowles Lumber for 330 acres of solar on forested lands. Um, obviously a bad idea. And hopefully those programs and those projects will get rejected by the local communities. Would you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the Community Land and Water Coalition and Save the Pine Barrens and how you, a lawyer out in Southeastern Mass, started connecting with the groups out here with us in Western Mass? Sure. So we, we've always had these networks among all these grassroots groups throughout the state. You know, we've worked together for many years on different issues to protect forests and save Massachusetts forests and rivers and waterways. And, um, you know, I think we're all collectively seeing these threats from solar and the Mass Audubon report about how much uh, forest has been lost. So we've just started connecting with each other and forming an alliance and community land and water coalition is based in southeastern mass primarily but we do network with our groups and people have you know kind of referred to it sometimes as smart solar massachusetts um, and let's try to do this right and how can we share resources and advocate together towards this common goal of saving our forests and doing renewable energy right mm -hmm. And so how did those conversations get started? Was it someone from your coalition calling somebody else and being like, hey, are you guys dealing with this too? Like, when did you realize that this is kind of a, a widespread problem? Well, again, going back to 2016, um, we did a report in, about Southeastern Mass and the forests, and that's been out there. And it kind of did move the state towards fixing the smart, the solar siting regulations a little bit. But then, um, you know, I get calls all the time. I know the folks in, Mass in Western Mass get calls for help. And as our coalition formed in Southeastern Mass in 2021, largely around the sand mining in part, we, you know, also started to incorporate other kinds of, we thought, reckless uh, development, which really in Southeastern Mass is the sand mining and solar. So then we joined forces and shared information with our allies in Western Mass and 
work together on the legislation and whatnot. What's the benefit of connecting with more people and sharing information? You know, it's a vol largely volunteer network of um, people who, you know, are involved with land trusts, watershed associations, et cetera, and everyone's doing research on different issues, whether it's wetlands impacts or not a lot of people talking about PFAS and risks from buried electrical equipment for solar. Um, so sharing resources, information, and sharing your bylaws. You know, Buckland has a great bylaw. Well, we could show that to Carver where they enacted a moratorium and they're gonna to try to change their bylaw to tighten it up. You know, how to write a moratorium petition, all those kinds of things that you can do on the local grassroots level. I do wanna shout out to the town of Wendell because they just finished drafting a solar bylaw too. And it's fairly restrictive and I'm really curious to see if that's gonna be able to hold up in court because I know they need to have it approved they had it approved by town meeting and now they have to get it approved by the attorney general's office right but they but they too only allow solar on a very small industrial solar on a small portion of land in town and even then it's not allowed to be over 10 acres that's a question right there would the, so the would the ruling have that the supreme judicial court made uh recently would that impact something like Wendell uh's bylaw? No, not at no. all okay. not at all because the court said towns can still reasonably regulate. So then it's going to come back to like, what was the town's basis? What factual information did they articulate in saying 10 acres, uh, you know, for the things like carb and all those things. So just for clarification, so the, the ruling just impacts towns that don't have uh, bylaws in their books about solar. Not, no, not even necessarily. It's really in the application of, that particular zoning law to that particular factual circumstance is mm -hmm. really a very limited, in our view, mm -hmm. um, ruling. Although maybe some solar companies will try to expand that view. Um, I, you know, I'm curious in, in this conversation that we've been having, uh, can you talk a little bit about the influence of solar, the solar industry in Massachusetts on Beacon Hill a little bit? And then I have a second question which is, okay, we've been talking about solar. Is there any hope that there could be other renewables that could emerge from this? I'm thinking wind, just because that's the other large one that I've heard of, but is there any other uh, alternative to solar that people are exploring? Well, in our view, it's not so much an alternative to solar, it's properly sited solar and solar done right versus solar done wrong. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's no free lunch when it comes to renewable energy, which I think is something that not a lot of big environmental groups want to talk about. Um, and I think we have to focus more on reducing consumption and not think that just by building more large ground mounted solar projects, we're going to be green if we keep, you know, if our economic model is built on endless consumption. So I think it's, it's more about that than pitting one type of renewable against another. Mm. Yeah. Although, although like there is question, a new, though. there is a conversation people are starting to have about finding a 21st century nuclear energy and nuclear fission as an alternative, which, you know, can produce a large amount of energy, but, you know, talk about environmental costs 
and devastation. You're going to bring nuclear fission up with a minute. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just had to. I had to. You can blame me. But I just had to because there's, there's Bill Gates. There's some real money behind creating a new wave of nuclear technology that would not emit CO2. I mean, even the editor of the Jacobin, a, a socialist magazine, uh, came out needing like, hey, if we are really to transition away from fossil fuels, nuclear is going to be part of the answer, at least as we transition and make the renewable energies much more efficient and much larger in having that conversation. You know, I, again, I, I get that that's what we have as alternatives unless we have nuclear f fusion, which is still in the development stage, but that isn't going to come out for like 10 or 20 years. But the question people are having right now is, do we have that kind of time? Right? It's like we're running low on time right now, given the emissions we've already emitted and how much we will be emitting. I don't really see how this is going to be easy to answer. I, not to say I, I don't uh, disagree with uh, the criticisms of where solar is. It's just there's so many different uh, uh, competing interests, and there's this desire to quickly get out of renewables. I don't know if you wanted to touch that, Mac, but that's just my thought. Well, you know, we're trying to save the planet and with cutting down trees and polluting our water and reducing flood capacity, et cetera, we're killing the planet in order to save it. And so we can try to plaster it with solar, solar fields, but what's going to be left? And is it going to be a livable planet? And I mean, you, we skipped over your question that I really liked, Dan. What was that? That was um, the some of these um, large solar companies have some sway on Beacon Hill. Oh, yes. Um, have you seen that at play at all in your work, Meg? Like oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they have way more um, lobbying clout than we do. And Borrego Solar has, you know, people who are at every um, meeting and the same with some of the other big solar companies. We're even seeing a revolving door with some of the legislators and regulators going to work for the solar industry. So yeah, they like with any industry, they have a lot of clout on Beacon Hill. Especially within the Democratic Party. I mean, that's who you would need to have influence given the outsized influence of Democrats on Beacon Hill on both the Senate and the House side. They're definitely influencing a lot of Democrats um, yes. who maybe you could be trying to sway, but I'm sure they have a lot of lobbyists and they're throwing a lot of money. And I'm sure they, they those uh, senators and, and Congress persons will need funds and money. And uh, who, who do they go to? Right. So uh, right. I, I think this is a grassroots fight, certainly. So quickly, uh, can you tell us a couple examples of success stories that you've heard about where people have been able to take on this industrial solar model that destroys forests? Sure. Recently in April, uh, we had a big victory at town meeting in Carver, which is a very small town dominated by the cranberry industry that is getting a lot of the subsidies to do sand mining on their property and then put solar on it or to put solar on these cranberry bogs with the toxic poles. And, um, you know, it's a 50% environmental justice community. A lot of people moved there to get away from the city and to be surrounded by trees and they see all the forest being cut down and frankly not a very 
politically engaged population, but when we educated people and started to do some organizing there, we got um, an overwhelming number of people out at town meeting, over 800 people showed up, fully educated and voted on a solar moratorium on large ground-mounted solar. And even the Board of Selectmen in that town has come out like, we need a moratorium, enough is enough for now, we need to study this, we need to do this better and smarter. And, and the last question, and, and I think we discussed this a little bit, but can you tell us, uh, people are listening and want to get involved. They, they see what solar is doing in their local town, or they fear that the industrial solar, uh, and people are getting worried about the damages that could be done. Meg, what can people do? Who can they reach out to? How can they get involved in the, the local grassroots movements? Sure. Uh, so in Western Mass, you have Smart Solar Shootsbury, and they have a website, Smart Solar Shootsbury. And our website is savethepinebarrens.org. We um, have a petition online, our moratorium petition to the governor to uh, eliminate subsidies for destructive solar. So yeah, reach out. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Save the Pine Barrens, and Community Land and Water Coalition. It's you know really important to people for people to feel like um, they can make a difference, and they can get involved and um, join our network. And yeah, a lot you know what a, what I hear from a lot of people is this is destroying our community character, and people from all political spectrums care about their forests, and everybody wants clean water and needs clean water, and you know these kinds of threats are something that people can unite behind even in a really divisive okay wow do you want me to sign us out now sure. or do you have a question um i don't have any more questions but um i i really appreciate the time that you spent with us and your knowledge and i hope that we can talk again too yeah well thanks to both of you for reaching out Appreciate it. Well, thanks. We've been talking with environmental lawyer Megan Sheehan here about industrial solar and its expansion throughout Massachusetts and how grassroots environmental movements and, and organizations are fighting back. Mm -hmm.